Welcome to the Touching Into Presence podcast. This podcast is for people who are interested in bodywork, empowerment, and somatic-based practices. I am Nikki Olson. I'm Andrew Rosenstock. We are certified rolfers. Collectively, we're trained in various movement and bodywork therapies with an emphasis on somatic awareness and client resilience. Through conversations, our goal is to share and explore mind-body paradigms to offer empowerment possibilities. It was such a pleasure to be in conversation today with Bob Schrey. Bob has four decades of experience as a student, apprentice, practitioner, and teacher of energy medicine. He's a certified advanced rolfer, biodynamic craniosacral therapist, and co-originator of SourcePoint Therapy. With a BA in architecture and a Master's of Fine Arts, Bob also incorporated his lifelong interest in structure and pattern into SourcePoint Therapy, which he developed, refined, and tested for 10 years before beginning to teach in the United States and Europe. This process of refinement and development continues as SourcePoint Therapy evolves. From 1970 to 1995, Bob was a student and teacher at the Rochester Zen Meditation Center. As a former Zen teacher, Bob brings a unique perspective to the field of energetic healing and manual therapy, helping his students develop sensitivity to the subtleties of working with energy and bringing a heightened awareness to their healing work. Bob currently resides in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where he maintains an active private practice of source point therapy in addition to teaching it worldwide. In today's conversation, we spoke about Bob's history with Zen, esoterics and rolfing, the 10 series as a ritual, how source point emerged, basics of source point, what is presence and embodiment, his artistic painting endeavors related to source point, and more. So with that, let's begin our talk. Hey, Andrew. Hi, Bob. Hi. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Hi, Nikki. Hey, Nikki. Good to see you, Nikki. Likewise. <laughs> I'll say, Bob, I'm really excited. Uh, and when I, when I sort of came up with the idea for this podcast, you were actually one of the people I, I really wanted to interview because I, have had, I had heard a lot about SourcePoint. A lot of people I knew who had done training uh, through the Rolf Institute or other places had taken it. Ray McCall was my uh, seminar three or, or module three or phase three, whatever it's called, it's teacher. Yeah. And so it was, it was like kind of talked about. There was someone in my class who had done it. And every now and then he, I remember he said something about like the golden, she was at the table next to me. And I was just thinking, what is the golden thread? Uh, and I have an esoteric background as well. So I was, when I was thinking about who do, who do we want to talk on the show with? You were there in, in my mind, so I'm, I'm really excited to have you here. And I haven't studied with you. Nikki has. She's had the, the blessing, too, but I haven't. So I'd like to just hear a little bit about Bob, like what brought you to this work and then eventually in SourcePoint. Okay. So uh, my background uh, in the background of SourcePoint, um, well, it's fairly complex. Um, you know, I spent um, 15 years full-time at a Zen Center as a um, Zen practitioner and eventually as Zen teacher. And so I came, I had that as my background. Um, my first interest was even preceded that. Um, you know, I was a part in during the late 60s. Um, I helped edit a, an issue of 
what was in the Canadian Whole Earth Almanac. I don't know if you remember the Whole Earth Catalog from the 60s, um, Stuart Brand. But anyway, uh, I was living in Toronto and uh, connected with the people that were editing the Whole Earth Almanac. And I was asked to edit an issue on healing. And so I uh, I did extensive you know research and reading, um, you know, including about Dr. Rolf. Um, I was actually I had actually thought of going to Esalen to train with her, uh, but this was during the Vietnam War and things were very complicated, so I didn't it didn't end up going there. And um, so I interviewed osteopaths, chiropractors. Um, you know, radionics practitioners. Radionics was really big in Canada at the time. Um, herbal healers. So just covering the whole range of healing. So I got very interested in just the field of healing in general. Um, and um, but then I got, but then I ended up uh, coming to the Zen Center, and that became my full full-time activity. I was on the staff of the Rochester Zen Center. Uh, so it was a 24 hours a day for 15 years uh, at the Zen Center. So I'm coming from a background, you know, in um, you know, meditation practice, uh, spiritual inquiry, and so on. Uh, when I left the Zen Center, it was just time to leave after 15 years. Um, I had a family that was growing up. I needed to spend more time with my son. Um, and so when I left, I, we had moved to Santa Fe at that point to start a Zen Center, uh, which is still going. It's a mountain cloud Zen Center here in Santa Fe. And um, so when I left and was trying to, to figure out what direction to go, um, Jan Sultan and I were just personal friends. Uh, that preceded the Rolf Institute. Like our kids were uh, in school together and we used to take the kids hiking and got to know each other through the school. And um, Jan said, well, why don't you, uh, I'll help you become a Rolfer. Uh, I'm teaching my last basic class uh, next year. So here's what you have to do to be able to be in that class. And so that was really my kind of avenue into rolfing was through Jan. Um, and I did my, so I did my, at that point, the training was uh, auditing and practitioner. Uh, I was before the phase three model, three phase model. And so I was in Jan's class here, the last class, basic class he taught um, as an auditor. Uh, and Jeff Maitland was the assistant. And uh, Gail, I think her name right now is Lovett. Um, you know, she was uh, the movement teacher for that. And uh, I became really good friends with uh, Jeff Maitland in that class because Jeff has a background in Zen also. Um, you know, Jeff has been a Zen practitioner for 50 years at this point. And so that was kind of my way in. And uh, Jan in that class taught 
was teaching the 10 series as a ritual. He said, the 10 series is a ritual that you're taking people through. And um, so that was a, you know, kind of a different orientation than I think that most of the classes are at this point. Um, but there was a very, you know, this was 38 years ago, 30, 40 years ago. So there was a very different orientation in the rolfing world at, at that uh, point. Um, you know, I did my practitioning with Tom Wing, um, you know, and at that point, you know, Tom was talking about how people that had a background in the arts um, and crafts made much better rolfers than people that came from the scientific medical world or massage world or PT world. Um, so Tom really resonated with uh, my background as an artist and, uh, you know, Zen practitioner and so on. So that was a, a really good class. And um, hey Bob, so can I, may I interrupt you? Could you, from your early, from the, from your basic training, when you said Jan Sultan was saying he's teaching it from a spiritual, what did you, what would, what did you call it? I said he taught the 10 series as a ritual that you're teaching. Ritual, sorry. Um, can you speak to that just a little bit? What, what stands out to you in the teaching that felt like a ritual? Well, just that, you know, um, I talked to Pedro about this too, Pedro Prado, when I was in Brazil once. And, um, you know, he said that, you know, when he first started rolfing, that that's how he viewed it. And that, you know, he would often have uh, quite frequently, you know, Pedro came from a background as a psychotherapist, not a body worker. And, you know, he said, I would often have people bring in drawings and uh, journal writings, dream journals uh, to their sessions. After, and uh, this was actually a very common phenomenon at that point that, you know, the work was seen as a path of personal development rather than a biomechanical process. And so that's what was happening when I became a rolfer was, you know, people would bring in journals and dream journals and drawings and so on. Uh, so there was much a really different orientation to the work as being part of the human potential movement. You know, and this came out of, you know, Dr. Rolf teaching at Esalen. Um, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I had this opportunity a few years ago. Um, I have a good friend who's one of Stan Groff's main teachers of the holotrophic breath work. And uh, she was having this little gathering. Uh, we live next door to them. And the, the gathering were all really old timers from Esalen. And they had all been there when Dr. Rolf was there. And when I told them that uh, I was a Rolfer and we started talking about the early days of Rolfing, they said, you have absolutely no idea what was going on at Esalen at that point. You know, Esalen was kind of the hub of, you know, the Grateful Dead were there. Ken Kesey was there. Osley was there. 
you know, it was kind of the center of, you know, Fritz Perls. I mean, it was really the center of what we what was known as the human potential movement. And it was intimately involved with the 60s and LSD and the hippie movement. And uh, all of that was happening at Esalen. That's the background that Rolfing first emerged in, was, was there before they moved to Boulder. Um, when I'm in Boulder, and I, um, it's amazing that since the school has been here forever, that a lot of people still don't know about it. And then what they do know, I, I, I just find it kind of funny. It, I, I get often one of these two responses of, ooh, I've been curious, but that sounds painful. Or, ooh, I've been curious, but I'm not in the mood to be start, to start crying. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there's, uh, there's a legitimate reason for that. Uh, you know, I certainly learned heavy-handed rolfing. Uh, you know, although Tom Wing had a little different approach. Um, you know, rolfing was, uh, you know, people were bruised during sessions. Um, it was, it was, it was really uh, tough for people to go through that uh, in those days. That was before the days of softer rolfing and the you know, the biodynamic influence and all the other influences that have come in that have kind of taken us in a different direction as a community. Um, so to get back to how, you know, SourcePoint emerged out of all this, you know, once I started actually practicing, um, I had a real uh, inquiry about um, why some people didn't respond as well to the work. Uh, why they didn't get better, uh, why they didn't hold the work, and so on. And so um, I began uh, working with my partner, Donna Thompson. Uh, the SourcePoint work is really the you know, a, a co-project with my partner, Donna, and myself. Uh, Donna wrote the book. Um, she there's there are hundreds of blogs on our website um, that she's written about SourcePoint and different aspects of SourcePoint. And, um, you know, she's uh, I guess what you would say is a uh, intuitive or um, channel. And so I began working with her to kind of investigate why people weren't improving or getting better. Um, so this work really emerged in concert with both of us, uh, with me asking questions. And, you know, sometimes this is, a, you know, uh, some people have a hard time relating to that. But, you know, I had kind of an eye-opening experience at one point in my rolfing practice because I had someone come into my office uh, for some rolfing sessions, and I asked her, I said, have you ever had any rolfing sessions before? And she said, yes. And I said, well, who with? She said, Dr. Rolf. She said, I had 30 or 40 sessions with Dr. Rolf. And um, so I thought, okay, this is a golden opportunity. <laughs> so I asked her, well, what was your experience with Dr. Rolf? You know, what do you remember? And she said two things. One was exactly what you were just talking about that it was excruciating 
and extremely painful. That was her first response. Uh, her second response was, um, I remember all the stories that she used to tell me while she was working. And I said, are there any of those stories that you feel like you can share? And she said, well, the main story that I, I can remember, because it made such a deep impression on me, was that Dr. Rolf told me in, during those sessions that the Rolfing work was channeled information from ancient Egypt. It didn't come from my scientific background. So, you know, um, and I started asking around some of the older people that were around uh, during the Esalen times. They all said the same thing. Uh, there are people who deny this vehemently. <laughs> There's some Rolfers that really push back on this. Um, I wrote it, I've written several articles for the Rolf Journal in which I detail this story. Uh, so those are there. Um, so I felt like when I started working with my partner, Donna, to investigate this, that it was really very much in the same vein as the origins of the work. Um, so, so over time that the work began emerging and I had also done my advanced training. Uh, it was the first advanced training where the focus was not on the advanced five series that used to be taught. And that was with Jeff Maitland and Michael Salveson. And one of the things that we talked about was this, was the taxonomies. You know, at that point, the taxonomic, taxonomic point of view had, was entering the training and the teaching. And, you know, one of the taxonomies is the energetic taxonomy. Uh, it's, it's in that taxonomic model. And so Jeff said, you know, I think we can, uh, we're kind of looking at this together. Jeff went in a little bit different direction, but not that much different. He said, why don't you go back and reread uh, Dr. Ross's book? Uh, you know, the Structural Integration book, Israel's Rosemary Fidus's book on Dr. Ross Speaks. So I, I reread that book about five times because I didn't see what he was talking about the first times, couple of times through. And then I realized what Jeff was talking about because Dr. Rolf in her uh, book talks about in the very first chapter about that there is a platonic blueprint for the structure of the human being. And she also says in that book, she said that there perhaps, she uses perhaps, but she says, perhaps there is an energetic structure that is undisturbed by trauma and the vicissitudes of life. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. I don't remember the exact quote, but that's basically what she says. And then she says in that energetic pattern, is self-maintaining, is sentient. So it's right there in her original book. It kind of gets glossed over if you're just looking at all the anatomical and structural uh, details that are in that book. But, um, and in the, um, 
Ida Rolf speaks, Dr. Rolf speaks by Rosemary Fidus. She says, you know, what makes Rolfers different from everybody else is that we are focusing on health. Not, we're not focusing on illness or disease. Uh, we're focusing on health. And that you as Rolfers must understand this. This is what you're doing. Your focus is on health. So uh, all of that kind of fed back into my explorations with uh, my partner, Donna, and looking at uh, these bigger issues of how does healing happen? How do, we, how do we evoke health? Because she says in that quote in the, in the Rosemary Fidus book that what you as Rolfers are doing is invoking and evoking health. Okay, so that, that's a very different perspective about what the work is about. Um, it's not just about balancing the body in the field of gravity, which was, you know, also one of her main contribution. But this emphasis on health is there in her initial work. And, you know, Andrew is uh, someone who was in Ray's class. You may have heard this. Ray um, always likes to quote um, Dr. Rolf at one of her, the last annual meetings that she was at, where she says, you want, you want to know what Dr. Rolf, what I think, what I'm interested in? I will tell you what I'm interested in. And then she goes into this whole uh, monologue about, uh, I want to see better energy fields, better functioning. It's all focused on the energetic makeup of the individual. She doesn't even mention gravity in that talk. Um, so all of these things just started, you know, coalescing. And I think it's some in the very beginning when I was looking at these questions about how to sustain the work and why people weren't responding is um, well, I'm not sure where I was going with that. Um, you were mentioning, uh, first of all, I want to just say thank you for reminding and reiterating the importance of the work isn't just about fix it, getting out of pain, structure, that there is this other really big part of orienting to health. And, that, that, and I think it's important just to kind of say this because I think a little bit, and maybe this is just from my lens, but often when we are talking about our bodies, we're always, it's almost kind of coming from a place that we're broken or this isn't working or right. I'm not good. And like all the, all these stories of not being good enough or efficient enough and that we do, our bodies are brilliant and want to orient to health. And sometimes it just needs a little support to get there, but we're not in fact, just these broken people that are constantly chasing to be fixed yeah and exactly. i think you were mentioning kind of your inspiration of developing the work with donna and i want to continue talking about that but could you share a little bit just because donna seems so important in the role of developing 
source point like where where what's her background and how is she, was she inspired for this as well okay um you know don and i met at the zen center in rochester so she was a long-term zen student also um so that's where that came from and it was uh, that extensive uh, meditation background that uh, began opening uh the doorways for her to uh, she doesn't um She's not a channel in the traditional sense of the word of channeling spirits and so on. Um, she does what she calls awareness sessions, uh, which we can talk more about when we start talking about presence. Um, so from that greater perspective of awareness, she's able to look at various things. And uh, so it was through that, uh, through that process um, you know, that a lot, that the work developed, you know, would not have developed without that. Yeah. And the, uh, the three modules of source point, module one, module two, module three are pretty much, um, the order in which the information came through. Can you share, oh. give us a little brief, um, Cliff notes of what what that is. Yeah, so uh, module one of source point, um, we're, we are looking at the basic foundation of working with um, points in the energy field that connects us directly to the blueprint of health. And then we're learning um, two um, scans with our hands, manual therapy scans. You know, if you've studied visceral manipulation, you know there's, there's a manual scan that's done. Um, this, these scans are a little different. Um, you know, the, the manual therapy scan and visceral manipulation is fairly quick. You know, and they talk about moving quickly so that you're not absorbing the heat of the person you're working with. But these scans are much slower. And there are two, the two scans or the first scan is uh, looking for where the entry point is in terms of working with someone. In other words, everyone uh, has a place that their body and whole being would prefer that you start. And so with that scan, that entry point scan opens up a whole lot of territory. Uh, you know, there was a period in my time when I had a lot of several AIDS patients. And when I would do this entry point scan, um, they would all say, you could not have picked a better place to make your initial contact. So that's the beginning making appropriate contact uh, in a place on the body that really resonates with the whole being, the whole system. So that's one scan. The second scan is a scan for what we call primary blockage, like where's the primary blockage just obstructing the flow of information of the blueprint. So that pretty much uh, is what we learn in module one, the working with energetic points around the body 
working with some points on the body, like the navel point and the sacral point, and then those scans. So that's a three-day workshop. Uh, so there's a lot of information in that. The second workshop is working with what we call energetic structures. And, you know, the energetic structures are, you know, just as we work within the rolfing world, the midline is an energetic structure. We work with the midline as an energetic structure that carries the information of the blueprint. Um, we're also working with um, another group of points on the body that we, that we call the guardian points uh, that uh, have to do with the, you know, the guardian function within the body. You know, there are many systems in the body that are guardian systems, the immune system, uh, you know, the guardian proteins. Um, you know, there are, so these guardian points are to help um, that process of guardianship. Um, and then we're working with the stick figure, which is basically the midlines, you know, and the palatinicity model. We're talking about span between two joints. And so this, the, what we call the stick figure, you know, just the midline of the arm, midline of the fingers, you know, midline of the core, midline of the legs, toes, pelvic girdle, shoulder girdle. So that, that energetic structure is extremely helpful for uh, people who are doing structural integration. It's how I do most of my structural integration is working with that energetic structure. Uh, and we're working with that energetic structure because it's a manifestation of the blueprint in the structure of the human body. You know, and we see that all over the world. What's one of the most common things you see worldwide? Stick figures, petroglyphs all over the world. How do, what do children draw? They draw a stick figure. Um, you know, even in, uh, say, a sophisticated uh, cave site like Les Cow, where they painted very detailed drawings of animals. You know, they knew how to draw. But they still did stick figures for the human being. And there's a reason for that. You know, that's, that's the underlying energetic structure. And if you look at the really early uh, acupuncture texts, um, they have, some of them have drawings of the original meridians in acupuncture. And the original meridians in acupuncture were the stick figure. Exactly the same thing. So, um, so that's another thing we're working with in module two. Uh, we're working with a single point. Uh, this brings up another uh, point that's really important in the source point work is from the source point perspective, um, the therapeutic relationship between client and therapist is not, a, <clears throat> excuse me, is not a dyad, it's a triad. So you have client and therapist, 
and you have a third point. And that third point uh, from the source point perspective is the information of health or the blueprint of health. Um, and so, you know, you're, you're working to both connect your client with that blueprint and yourself. So it's not a, you know, diet. It's not dualistic. We had this other point. And I think this will, when we get to talking about presence, this is also related to this notion of presence. It's not presence in the sense of having a strong personality or being present in the world. It's the presence of a third force. Just like Dr. Rawls said that there was a energetic pattern that is self, well, how we put it, sentient. So that's what we're working with. We're working with the blueprint is that third point um, as the operating factor. So that's where the that's where the healing really is coming from, is from that third point. Uh, we're just uh, as as practitioners, we're just facilitative facilitators. And I think that was embedded in the early Rolfing work. You know, gravity was the third point. You know, I mean, Dr. Rawls said many, many times, gravity is the therapist. That's what she was pointing to, that there is something else besides her skill set that is the therapist. You know, and different people talk about this different way. You know, in the biodynamic world, it's, they talk about the blueprint carried by the breath of life. So they're also referring to the blueprint as the operating factor. So yeah, I was I was going to actually bring up a little bit about the biodynamics, Bob, and maybe it's a good time sure. because one of the one of the things, as I understand it, is you know when you were saying before about orienting orienting to health, this is a this is a, a part of some schools of osteopathy. I, I don't know if it's all schools of osteopathy anymore. I think originally it was with AT still, but things have have changed. Uh, but in the in the biodynamic world, especially for uh, Jim Jealous and people who were following his work, as I understand it, again, the it was all about orienting to health. And even when I would read some of Jim's book, he talks a lot about you know staying in health. And I, I don't know if that's sim, you know, I don't know if that's similar to the same aspect of the third point. But it's a lot about really when I'm working from that where I'm right now. It's not about you. You do sort of separate. I sort of separate the person. You keep, I keep contra, uh, awareness of the person, but also about the health residing with, within that and not looking for the illness, but really the health and separating myself as well from it and, and having that um, that not dyad, but that non relative non-dual or uh, something along that lines spot. So I, I hear similarities. Um, and of course, there's there's going to be similarities across a lot of spectrums, but I'm curious, was, was that model being brought in or was it more of a uh, health has a, a finite ways of looking at it? Um, well, this notion of, you know, health as the operating factor is there historically throughout history in the healing world. And that's one of the things that uh, in the presentation for module one, what that presentation is, is going through 
all the different uh, spiritual and esoteric and, um, you know, practical ways that people have talked about this notion of a blueprint. You know, it's there in almost every tradition, uh, you know, the, the blueprint for the human being. Um, it's just it's just kind of embedded in, in, I guess you would say, in practices that are oriented and towards more what you might call vitalism. You know, there's this whole school of vitalism and, you know, rather than illness and disease, looking at terrain theory came out of that. Um, you know, so it's a really old tradition. It's not just there, um, you know, the uh, the whole, you know, the term biodynamic, um, you know, originally came from Rudolf Steiner. And, uh, you know, it was picked up, you know, by other, you know, German uh, anatomy people and, you know, Blechschmidt and people like that. Um you know, I was doing some research at one point and found a um, a passage from Blechschmidt, and he says, "These during the embryonic development, the cells migrate along the stick figure." You know, and it's just these things in passing that are said, but you go, "Okay, what's what was he talking about?" So this notion of you know, biodynamic was a term Rudolf Steiner used for uh, his uh, work with plants. You know, biodynamic gardening came out of that. Um, the whole Waldorf school education curriculum came out of that. Uh, you know, he was talking about etheric formative forces. Um, that was one of his main focused and that's what led to the development of you know homeopathic remedies preparations for the garden from herbs and horns and hooves and so on all of that was in an effort to connect with these formative forces and you know he was influenced uh, by Goethe you know the great german philosopher and poet um, who had this whole notion of the ur phenomena you know, the ur-human, uh, the ur-flanza, the ur-plant. And, you know, this is kind of the direction that Jeff Maitland went in and talking more about phenomenology and, and uh, you know, the ur-phenomena. Ur uh, ur simply means primordial. So, uh, so I want to back up for a minute because I'm remembering when I had that memory gap for a minute. Um, you know, I think when I, when we first started working on developing this work, um, I think myself and I think Ray, we thought that we were working towards developing the energetic taxonomy within the Rolf Institute. Um, that did not happen because of, for a variety of political reasons and uh, so on. And so at that point, you know, I really separated the work from the Rolf Institute and started teaching outside of the Rolf Institute. And, you know, there's still a lot of Rolfers that take the, take the training, but the training is, 
attracted people, acupuncturists, psychotherapists, medical doctors, uh, clients of people, uh, you know, your clients, my clients. Um, so the bulk of the people taking the training at this point are not just in the structural integration world. Um, they're coming from a much broader spectrum um, because the work can really be done um, by anybody. You don't have to have a background in anatomy or structural work. Um, so I kind of, so we kind of took that and, you know, it was in, uh, when I turned 60, which was 17 years ago, that we decided that we named it source point and it became its own thing uh, rather than, you know, just a energetic taxonomy of raw theme. I guess there's, I guess there's pros and cons to that. The pros being anyone can, can, can do it, right? You don't need to be an SI background. And one of the cons is that you we have a beautiful space to actually grow the energetic taxonomy of SI. Uh, and yet due to various political reasons, and I know you're not the only person that had political issues and left and started your own school. Um, I know that's a common theme, but in some ways it's sort of a shame because here we have a way to grow uh, and we're, we're sort of put aside. Yeah. Well, I don't think we're actually put aside too much. It's really interesting. Um, you know, and I think this will continue to change. Uh, you know, like here we are talking. Uh, you know, I still have, you know, Rolfers trickling in the classes. Um, you know, the um, there are a couple of Rolfers in Germany who are teaching SourcePoint, who are teaching Rolfers there, actually. Um, you know, there's much more of a tradition in Europe of, you know, Goethe, Rudolf Steiner, uh, you know, Joseph Boys, all of these philosophers and artists that were, you know, connected to the more spiritual dimension of, of the work. So it's a, it's a little easier jump for some of the European Rolfers uh, because of that rich philosophical background and spiritual background. Um, so it's still there. We're still chipping away. And, you know, there have been, um, there have been, I think, three articles in the Yasi Journal about SourcePoint. Um, I wrote one. Ray and I wrote one. Um, Corey Hess, SI practitioner, wrote one. Uh, I've had three articles in the Rolf Journal about this. Um, you know, um, so it's still... It, don't give up hope. <laughs> well, and I think, and I don't, I, I know we're, we're going to talk about the word presence because of, of the fact that it's overused and what, what does it mean? But I will, I'll say it in, in the terms of with working, if the energetic is undeniably there, like if you are in fact being present with your client and, and even, I don't even think you have to have these all these know of all the, the the others out there, whether you're talking about source point, biodynamic, but I remember, and maybe this is because of my, you know, I had Ray McCall and Thomas Walker is my yeah. face too. Yeah. So in my training, it was, I mean, it was very much learning the 10 series, but the energetics was spoken about a little bit. And then when I went off and did my, 
you know, I was certified opening up my practice. I was feeling stuff and it was beyond just the tissue, the person. And that's why, you know, I did, I, it, the energetics aspect isn't something that I've taken a great deep dive in, uh-huh. but I certainly, I did the, I did up ledger. I did your source point because I wanted to know more and be like, okay, what is this that I'm feeling beyond just fascia, yeah, body, and hold presence for it, whether or not I was, you know, masterminding some kind of technique. No, but I feel like by holding that dialogue and being present with it, it it's just part of the work. Yeah. Well, you know, um, Ray just sent me an article a couple of weeks ago. Um, um, it was an article that Jeff Maitland had written about the taxonomies. And one of the things that uh, he says in there is that, you know, as a practitioner, you need to be able to determine within what taxonomy the, he uses this odd word, order thwarter. Um, But he says, you need to be able to determine within which taxonomy the major blockage to order emerging lies. That sounds like a Dr. Seuss word. Yeah, it does, order thwarter. (laughs) But um, I think it's easier just to say blockage. Um, but what, what I've seen, the, where it becomes, uh, problematic, I think for the structural integration world is that if you're open to that level of, of, you know, of the work or just you're wired that way, you begin to see that the major blockages to order emerging in the system are very rarely at the structural level. You know, they're they're at the level of trauma, you know, which we've become more aware of as a community and the teaching. Uh, They're at the level of karma. They're at the level of emotions. They're at the level of ancestral patterns. They're at the level of belief systems. You know, that's where, and we work at all those levels within source point, uh, you know, module three, I didn't get to module three, but module three is, is really focusing on all those different levels, trauma, karma, emotion, and how to work at those different levels from this perspective of the blueprint of health. Um, yeah, and I, I, um, I don't remember where I heard this from, and it may have been from Moralfa or not, but you can't have physics without metaphysics and vice versa. Uh-huh. So you start looking at structure, it's great. Um, and that's what brought me into it. But then as you go on, you start to see, I mean, trauma is not a physical thing. It might manifest physically, but right. it itself is is a metaphysical. Same with the karma, same with emotions, same with all this stuff. And so to start to look at how all these things are affecting structure in my own practice has been uh, very transformative. Yeah. You know? And uh, a good analogy of this is when I, or a good example, when I first started rolfing, I had this client who was a psychiatrist and he had this uh, limp, really severe limp. And that's what he came to me for. He wanted to be able to walk better, you know, purely um, 
biomechanical issue, he thought. But after one session, we were working and um, he, he was walking. I was watching him walk and uh, he wasn't limping all of a sudden. And he said, oh, my gosh, he said, I, I grew up with my grandfather. My grandfather raised me and my grandfather had a limp. And that's how I learned how to walk. So, you know, so that real, you know, so there's a good example of, you know, the main blockage was not in his structure. You know, it was in his ancestral lineage. So, yeah. you know. Yeah, you know, something, something that uh, was occurring to me, and I, I've actually thought about this before, but I didn't know about you in this, which is thinking, and I think this would be a nice way to tie into presence, actually, because we've talked about this a bit, and, and you know, you asked, um, for the listeners out there, you know, when we emailed you, um, you were like, what is touching the presence? And that was really a, a, a curiosity and something I, you know, I'm some of the people who've affected me greatly in this work have been Jeff Maitland, have wow. been Kevin Frank and, and have been, uh, I think you, although I, even though I haven't studied with you, there's a curiosity that's opened up and, and I think you've affected a lot of people in this. And in a similar or a commonality between the three of you in particular is Zen. And oh, yes. you've, all sat, you've all sat in, in Zen, uh, Zendos before. And I think I've had relatively higher level or higher you know, status up there. And I would imagine, and I'm taking a guess, and this, this would be a din of sorts, but sitting in Zen is sitting with presence uh, of some sort. And that possibly that is why, in particular, you three. Although I don't want you to speak for them, but there's something within that presence that has has led to has led to more. Yeah, I would agree. You know, Kevin, Kevin, and I were at the same Zen center actually. Uh, so I've known Kevin for uh, since I was 27 years old, <laughs> 50 years, <laughs> uh, and. Um, I would say it's uh, it's definitely it depends on what in within the Zen world it depends on what school you're in, uh, what you're how you're sitting and what you're doing. There is a practice in Zen that's called Shikantaza, which is just sitting, which I think is what you're more referring to. And I would say, but it's still it's the presence, even there, it's the presence of awareness. That's what you're sitting in. And, you know, the Tibetan Buddhists talk about the same thing, the Dzogchen, uh, the Vajrayana. Uh, they're all talking about sitting in this naked awareness. Uh, that's the term in Tibetan Buddhism, naked awareness. And uh, I think that a background in that certainly helps you as a practitioner. There's no doubt about that. Was there something specific about, you know, Jeff and Kevin that you? No, I, I think more just the fact that they all that they've all had extensive Zen backgrounds, and yeah. as do you. And so there's something about, um, and I am not a Zen is not my bigger area of expertise. I know a lot more about Theravada and uh, and uh, Vajrayana and a bit about Mahayana, and I know that Zen is. Uh, a subset in some ways of, of Mahayana. Uh, so I, I know there's sitting, I don't know that much about it 
in general. My understanding is that it's a a non-dual practice. Um, yes. Uh, right. And so within non-duality, you, you presence becomes very important because that's really all there is. Yes. Is so I, you know I think I was in some way trying to lead us into this into this point by that, but I would imagine there is a similarity there because when one is able to to, to sit with and be in that presence, uh, I don't want to say it makes things easier because I've actually found that it makes a lot of things more difficult, <laughs> but yeah. that it, it, it from a, from a, a sitting with a client or a sitting with understanding, it, it, in some way it just makes the, the, the field more, more big because the, the field is infinite. And at the same point, there is no field. Yeah. So, um, you know, in the discussion that Ray and I are having right now, one of the things that we're talking about is if you were to, we're talking about what we would teach in a class that's focused more on this uh, element of presence. And uh, both of us have felt that it would be extremely difficult to do a class like that without having the class part of the class be a meditative practice? Uh, for 100%. I mean, this is something, and in my background, I do have a, a meditative background through yoga, but even as a child, I I started doing it sort of accidentally as a way to, to relieve stress. I don't really know how I did that, but I, I did. And I, I have trouble, and I'm going to probably upset people listening who, who don't but understand how people can can be body workers or any sort of quote unquote healer modality without having a meditative uh, meditative being any sort of introspective practice. Yeah. It doesn't have to be just sitting. There are other practices, um, yeah. but I, I, I struggle with that. And and of course I'm biased because I have that. But it doesn't make sense because I just find for myself when I am when I'm in periods of sitting more, my work is much easier and, and much more transformative for the people I'm working with. Yeah, exactly. You know, and what we're, we're at a point right now is that, you know, when, um, when Ray and I first started teaching the source point classes at the Rolf Institute, uh, you know, the Rolfing community basically related to the source point as another technique or another, you know, way they could uh, orient to the work. And what we're seeing, and this is really Donna's specialty, is that it's absolutely necessary that if you want to be a good practitioner, that you have some uh, practice that is oriented towards developing a greater awareness. You know, and this is why she calls her work awareness sessions, uh, where you sit together in a state of awareness and dialogue within that presence of that awareness. Um, so I would agree that, you know, so we're just kind of moving, you know, like this fall, Donna and another person that she's working with are going to teach more of a meditative workshop uh, for source point practitioners that's going to focus on uh, awareness and developing awareness uh, as the ground of source point. 
Well, I think that's great. One of my biodynamic teachers, whenever we start any training, it's usually we sit for 20 to 30 minutes before every class. Uh-huh. And, and I, you know, I find that really helpful. I, I, I want to actually go back, and this will, will relate, but I'm curious, this has a lot to do with awareness, is when you were talking how you sort of started with SourcePoint and you were sort of noticing how I heard it, you were noticing why did more or less as I inherit, why did Rolfing work on some people and not on other people? And you're trying to kind of figure this out. And are you familiar with Eugene Genlin? No, I don't know. Eugene Genlin developed a practice called focusing that has fused in many psychology and body work practices. And Eugene Genlin was, uh, he's the one who developed the word uh, felt sense or developed the phrase felt sense, okay. or sometimes known as the felt sense of awareness. And he, he was the same thing. He w- was a philosopher that said, why is it psychology works sometimes and not, well, for some people and not others. And he wanted to find that, that basically what is the essence of it. And from that came this uh, very basic uh, didactic process called focusing, which is a, a learning, learning how to have awareness of, of your thoughts and your emotions in your body and where body yeah. awareness was. Yeah. So it's infused in many other practices now. Um, yeah. But it was, it's very interesting to me because to me, it was the same, more or less the same reason of how you got to it. And it's a way of, of, of starting to be more, more aware of, 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 of awareness itself. Yeah, exactly. Awareness of awareness is really what the, the ground of source point, actually. Uh, you know, and... Mm-hmm. Um, you should have a conversation with Donna about this at some point. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to. I'd love to. We'll have to exchange yeah. uh, information. Yeah. Um, yeah. One one thing I also to, to mention, Paul, you did mention uh, you have a, there is a source point book, and so I yeah. will. We will put a we will put a link uh, into that uh, in our notes so that people can can have access to it easier. Um, is the source point book helpful for? only for people who've taken the training or is it good for anybody? No, it's good for anybody. It's an introduction uh, for people that have no medical background or, you know, uh, you know, it's written for the general public. Uh, it's not a how-to book. You won't learn how to do source point, but it gives, first of all, it gives the background that we've been talking about my background, Donna's background in therapy and social work and, how she came to what she came to. Um, and then it discusses the general, all of the general principles that we talked about, uh, you know, in module one, two, and three. Um, so it gives a general outline of, of uh, source point. And, you know, for people who are not professional body workers, um, you know, they're able to use this work for themselves and for their family uh, or friends. Um, so, so there's a bigger audience. Hmm. Cool. Thanks. And, um, because we, we have already started talking about presence and we've gone a bit in, but it was, it seemed when I was reading the emails back and forth, it seemed like something you were very interested in. And, and I care as well about you teaching a class with Ray or working on a a workshop with Ray about it, which I think would be great. I, I want to just make sure, because we like to make all of our guests satisfied. satisfied. Have we spoken an, enough about it for you, or is there more you want to sort of dive into? Because one of the things in the email you did mention was about the, uh, I'll paraphrase you, the, the overuse of 
words like presence and embodiment, which I, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. Well, you know, um, yes, I think, you know, there was a, a during the pandemic, you know, the, the last year, uh, there was a large online conference on embodiment. I don't know if you were aware of that. Um, you know, it was like 3,000 people attended that conference. Um, my son did a presentation at that conference. Um, and for some reason, that word embodiment has become a something that people are focusing on within the somatic therapy world. And I, I feel like it's, you know, it's, it's in some cases, it's become synonymous with being a good movement person, you know, like, you know, being a good martial artist or a good dancer or, you know, being able to use your body in a way, certain way. Um, and I had this discussion with Jeff, actually, a few years ago, we had a faculty meeting in Phoenix with Jeff. And um, I asked him, I said, Jeff, why aren't you teaching rolfing classes anymore? And he said, well, I don't feel like I can embody the work. So we had a discussion about this word embodiment because my feeling is that the work, the word embodiment is really pointing to each of us being more who we are, fully who we are. It doesn't have to do, you know, like I have a background in the martial arts. I take Qigong lessons every week. I do Feldenkrais lessons. I do physical therapy five days a week. You know, I know the importance of movement and moving well. But to me, that doesn't have much to do with embodiment. You know? Yeah, I mean, the it's it, there's Jeff's background as a philosophy professor is going to have is a slightly different, um, and I know from reading his his work and from studying a bit about it, the phenomenology, in particular, uh, Maurice Merleau-Ponty was one of the people who first actually kind of brought embodiment into this this realm of, of thought, the embodied being. But I, I you know, I I hear you very much about this. This uh, this sort of the movement world, and you know, I I'm going to be going. I'm traveling tonight to a, a country whose name I I don't want to mention because I don't want to have anyone hearing me talk about them. But there's a few people who teach embodied yoga, but they're they're just teaching movement, <laughs> and they've they've got this beautiful catchphrase, um, yeah. and they, they think they know very little bit about what it actually means to live in their body. They know how to move their body somewhat and i find it really i find it hard to talk about embodiment because it's a very personal it's a very personal thing that is hard to actually explain because it's not a it's not a, it's not really a physiological it's just this mix however i know when i work with my clients and i see other people i can see when they're from my view more embodied when they're moving more at ease with less thoughts when you know they are how their how their their body moves as a representation not of a physiological being but of a psycho emotional physical all of that being and when someone is that I, I hear that as as you're saying like their truest self or or getting to their truest self I mean I think we all have layers or sheets that have uh, that are called culture that are called education that are life experiences that that cover the embodied essence of us, but through practices 
like this, we start to we start to you know find that Feldenkrais, as you mentioned, is a, is a can be a beautiful embodied practice. It can also be a very uh, what's the word? Not the uh, procedure based. Do this, 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 and so it's less about feeling in and becoming aware, which is how I understand Moshe developed it, and more into a step by step protocol. Yeah, well, I'll tell you a little story about that. I have a good friend who's an international Feldenkrais teacher. He teaches all over the world. He was at uh, Moshe's uh, original classes, one of his original students, and. Um, we trade work, and um, the first time I worked on him, uh, he stood up and he started walking around and he said, I'm walking completely differently than I ever have. And, you know, it wasn't because he had done his Feldenkrais lessons or, you know, that the information for how we function as human beings is contained in the blueprint. And, you know, uh, the more that that we can connect to that and bring that present, the more people will start moving in a more embodied way that's appropriate for them. You know, because if you look at the movement work, you know, what you learn in Bagua, what you learn in Qigong, it's very different than what you learn in the Rolfing movement work about what good movement is. You know, if you look at Ido Portal, you know, the movement work, you know, that's very different than the Feldenkrais work or the Rolfing movement work. You know, so there, there Although, are a funny, uh, you know, a funny thing about that. I have a, a client who's uh, uh, an Ido higher level student. And when they do big trainings, Ido brings in SI people to work on them when they're not moving. Yeah, of course. There's a, I, I'm, you know, I don't want to give the wrong impression here. I'm a big fan of SI work. You know, I think SI work is one of the hands-on uh, modalities that's actually most aligned with what we're talking about. Because because it's in, whether people remember it or not, Dr. Rolf was coming from this place that there is a platonic blueprint for the structure of the human being. That's embedded in her vision, whether we know it or not. So you know, I'm not surprised that he would that he would do that. I think yeah. what yeah. I mean, we've already kind of mentioned this that embodiment isn't all, it necessarily about how you're moving it's an expression but it's embodiment is the ability to to be able to hear yourself and to learn from yourself and 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 with those lessons to orient to health and the, all the other things structural integration rough movement all these kind of holistic modalities are offerings to to tap into that potential because I mean, I, the way I see it is, structural integration, although it's wonderful, it might—it's not for everyone. You know, there might be something else out there that suits their their interests, their influences that help them find that. It just so happens, you know, we're probably all a little biased because we all do structural integration, and that's kind of our root. 
but yeah, I feel like, you know, I've done some meditation, but where I find deep meditation sometimes is, is in somatic movement. Uh-huh, sure. It's allowing my body, you know, and it's, it's, it's super fun. Like I have a yoga wall behind me. I've tapped into all sorts of modalities that kind of have a, a way to do it. And while it's fun to do that way, because it also can be community-based, we all kind of know something we're doing together and there's a flow and there's a connection with that. What's also super fun is going off script and letting your body lead. And when your body's leading, you're kind of leading into what feels good. And then you might find something that doesn't feel so good, but you can dance in that exploration and, you know, work it out you know, whatever thing is coming up for you, find ways to work it out for yourself or, Oh, I could go seek help for this. And that, you know, and I, to me that having that dialogue, dialogue with yourself, that is an expression of embodiment. Yeah. Doing something with it. Yeah. I would agree. You know, I think that, you know, that's at the forefront of, uh, you know, continuum work, you know, the continuum movement work, Um, you know, you're working with what movements come out of your, emerge from your body, you know, starting with very small microscopic movements and then letting those become bigger, like you're talking about. Um, and, you know, I know Emily uh, Daoud um, used to teach in Albuquerque. I used to go to her workshops in Albuquerque years ago, many years ago. And, you know, and she talked about the continuum work as a meditative practice. Um, that was very much at the heart of it. Um, and it's built into Qigong. It's built into Tai Chi. Um, you know, it's built into a lot of movement modalities. That it's, it's a, so when we talk about meditation, you know, the Buddha talked about, you know, there are four postures for meditation, sitting, walking, standing, lying down. You know, and, you know, in the Zen world, for instance, you, know, you sit for a half an hour, you walk for 10 minutes. You know, when I did my Pasana training in Sri Lanka many years ago, you know, I spent uh, as many hours walking, doing walking meditation as I did sitting meditation. So, you know, meditation doesn't, isn't confined to sitting cross-legged on a cushion. But I think what I was referring to trying to get at is in this terms of discussion about embodiment, you know, um, you know, if you take someone like uh, Ramana Maharshi, the great spiritual teacher, um, you know, he he had um, terrible posture, (laughs) uh, pretty poor health overall. um, But he was embodied. He was embodying that presence of awareness. To me, that's what embodiment is. It's like true embodiment is someone who's able to transmit that awareness. Yeah, I think that's a great example. It it, it reminds me, it's a little different. I don't think I've shared this in the podcast, but maybe I have. Um, I was once in a meditation training and I was doing everything I could to have perfect posture. And I was, and, and I was just in agony 
And at some point I just said, fuck it. And I like dropped and I, I went into this really poor posture, which my body needed. And as soon as I did that, I was, I was gone. I was, I was out for a while in, in, a, in space uh-huh. because I, I, I didn't need, I was putting an idea of what, of what I was supposed to be doing, which wasn't what I needed to be doing. And when I kind of dropped that, yeah, I, I, yeah, it was great. Yeah, and the you know the difficulty with a lot of these, like uh, say Ido Portal's work, you know, um, many years ago, this was before he got really popular. I ran across his work, and um, I called him up on the phone, <laughs> and uh, that was seventeen years ago. That was, that was sixty, and I said, "Would you be willing to work with me uh, online?" Because I was available at that, starting to become available. And he said, yeah, I'd be glad to work with you under one condition. <laughs> and he, his one condition was that I spent a minimum of three to four hours a day doing the work. So, you know, that's what I'm talking about. You know, the movement work is profound. And I have tremendous respect for all everybody doing, you know, they're dedicating themselves to his work or to the you know, Tai Chi or whatever, but it requires, it's not going to come from just an hour rolfing session. You know, it requires that kind of dedicated practice to really be embodied in movement. Uh, you know, I, I try to do, you know, probably an hour or so of movement work a day, either Qigong or physical therapy or, you know, whatever. It's really hard even to get an hour a day. And, you know, I know that my limits in movement are coming from my lack of time to put into it. You know, um, it's, so. I, I fully understand. I'm in the same place right now when I'm. I mean, currently kind of in between apartments, we'll say lives, uh, countries, a lot of stuff. And I'm in you know, Massachusetts right now um, with my wife, who uh, is quasi stuck here in the meantime, while we deal with green card processes. So when I come here right now in her space, there's not really much space for, for movement as well as time because we don't see each other. I haven't seen, you know, I'm leaving for two months. So we're like, we want to absorb the time, which is great. My body feels it. And also my, my personality. When I am, we spent the last weekend with a client who has a big barn. And I would go every morning for an hour and roll around the floor and move into TRX. And it was great. And I'm super happy and wonderful. And then I come back and I'm stagnant. And I am, I am definitely not the most embodied of myself I can, I can be, for sure. So I can, I can relate to that. And it's always just a good reminder of just you know it's always time it's just making it yes. so i think that you know the the um one thing i would just caution you at about is just because you're not doing that doesn't mean you're not embodied no no for sure it just but i am aware that well i mean i guess one part i could say well the awareness of the unawareness is still an awareness and we can go into that aspect yeah. um but I, you know, I am aware that I guess what I say is I'm aware that I am the I am not as full a person as I can be. Right. Or there's 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 an ability, there's an essence that I can 
that I have the ability to get to, but at this moment, I am not accessing that. Uh, it doesn't mean I'm disembodied or, you know, I am, I am not the best version of myself. And, and one of the things I think of when I think of what, be it rolfing or be it any of these sort of practices or working towards embodiment is how can you be the quintessential version of self? Because that's where print is. Yeah. Right. So how do you how do you access that? Um, and it's okay to not always because you you're not going to be one hundred percent perfect. So the imperfections of the self are perfect. And you need to fall in order to stand up. I, I get that, uh, and I'm I'm content with it. I I would rather have time with my wife who's yeah. taking a nap right behind us. But yeah, it's just sort of recognizing that you know, and I can feel that. I feel it in my joints, and I feel it in my personality. Yeah. So you know, everybody's wired differently. So, you know, somebody else might say, like, I have a client uh, that I see every week who's a world-class jazz and classical musician. He's considered to be number one clarinet player in the world. Uh, he practices it. He's uh, two years, three years older than I am. So he's 80. He still practices six to eight hours a day. He doesn't do movement work. He's not a great, you know, his posture is terrible even after hundreds of rolfing sessions. You know, this clarinet player, you know. And, uh, and uh, but I would say he's embodied. You know, even though he's got bad posture, doesn't do movement work, he is fully who he is. He's totally immersed himself. He said, this is how I became uh, world famous. I, he said, everybody knows me as a practitioner. He said, everybody knows I practice six to eight hours a day. So it's uh, so that there's a good example of somebody who's in body, from my perspective, but he's a terrible movement person and has terrible posture, you know, from his occupation. Uh, so I, I think that, so if movement is part of who you are, then yes, it's part of your embodiment. But there are a lot of people for whom movement is not a part of who they are. Yeah, I think for me, I don't know if it's who I am or who I, I believe I, I need to be, which will take us on a, a separate a separate story, which we don't <laughs> necessarily have time for. And I know that um, you know we are coming close to time, at least from my point of view. Nikki had, had something she did want to share, so I'm going to pass it over. Yeah. So speaking of being present, being very present in this podcast, I feel like we had a little cliffhanger with uh, your client that you worked on who received work from Ida, who had the heavy handed work. Did you do source point type work with her? I mean, what was her response from receiving work from you? Well, her response from receiving work from me after about Three sessions, I think she felt that um, it wasn't rolfing. That she identified in her mind rolfing with heavy-handed work. So if I wasn't doing heavy-handed work, she, I mean, she had good results. I mean, we got accomplished what she wanted to accomplish. But I, I'm pretty sure that she felt like this is not what Dr. Rolf was doing. Yeah, I think uh, we have... We're still wrestling with that, with the start of the historical start of the touch. 
aspect. Yeah. yeah. Because I actually had a, a person come in to my office who just recently looked me up and down and said, well, I would want you to be bigger. And if the pressure isn't hard enough, then I'm just going to walk out. Wow. So, <laughs> yeah, I've had clients yeah. like that. I've had clients who've been uh, work with other really heavy handed rolfers. And, uh, you know, I know how to do that work. Uh, I can do that work, I, but I prefer not to, but he insisted on it every single time. And finally, I just got tired of doing it. And that was the end of our relationship because I, yeah. You know, so, so yeah, people yeah. have all, all kinds of expectations and, you know, some people want, which I mean, there's, there's a need and a place. And I just want to honor your work in the energetic aspect, because I think that's, what's really unique. We kind of touched a bit on that in the series of our podcast, but having um, worked with a little bit of myself in my own practice, but I've had the good fortune of being in the classroom with you, Ray McCall, Thomas Walker, other people who do orient a little bit more to the energetic work and, you know, being in the classroom and insisting some of these people or being a student. Um, profound. I mean, it's it feels so magical when clients get off the table and are working, moving better, feeling better, experiencing the world in a more embodied, enlightened way. Purely from working from more of an energetic point point of view. And I think that's kind of what we've been talking about is there is this other aspect of our being that gets overlooked. And yeah. there's and, and you know what you're saying, Nikki, I think is really true. And the where the I think where the complication comes in is that some people think that because you're energetically oriented, that you're not going to accomplish the goals of the work. That's what it comes down to, uh, whether it's another practitioner or your clients. And, you know, I think, you know, you've seen from, you know, Ray's classes and Tom's classes and SourcePoint class, you can get the results of the work. I mean, we have standards, right? For session one, right. you want to accomplish certain things. You can accomplish that with, uh, in most cases with energetic work. But having an energetic orientation doesn't mean that you don't do hands-on work. You know, my, right. my uh, orientation here is that the blueprint, if we re relate to the blueprint of health as being sentient or that greater health as being sentient, uh, it will use whatever skill sets you have as a practitioner. So my so-called source point sessions, I'm using everything I learned in Rolfing or in my biodynamic training. This, you know, I have the, that background. I'm continuing, con even now I'm continuing to study and learn. And, you know, the field of healing is huge. And, you know, that awareness, that information of the blueprint that energetic pattern that Dr. Rolf talked about knows what skill sets you have. So someone who is working from an energetic perspective that has all the biomechanic skills that you have as a Rolfer is going to be able to make better use of that. It's going to be able to do more. 
Does that make sense? Totally. Totally. I'm six foot four. You can't see it on Zoom. I'm six foot four, uh, anywhere from 210 to 220, depending on the day. Uh, I, I got into body work from, from Thai, living in Thailand and, and learning that, which can be very physical. And uh-huh. now, now I'm much more into biodynamics <laughs> and, and, and of being in between and of knowing, you know, sometimes dropping, first of all, sometimes dropping an elbow into someone's IT band feels great for us both. Yeah. But, but, you know, it's sort of knowing, knowing, knowing when and how to, uh, to, to move with that. And it's, I like what you said, here you are, if I did my math correct, 77, and you're still learning. And that's how I hope to be, is to always yeah. continue yeah. learning. Yeah. yeah. Let me ask, for people who want to continue learning, I believe you're you're going to be offering classes again soon, correct? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> we just made our schedule yesterday, and there are a lot of classes available. They're not all me or Donna. You know, usually Don and I teach together. Um, uh, we have six people who are teaching the source point work at this point. Four of them are rolfers. So there's Hiro Sato in Osaka. He's teaching workshops all next year. There's Dave Sheldon in Boulder, who's a rolfer, uh, who's assisted Ray in many, many classes and me in many classes. So he's going to be teaching module one and two this year. Uh, there is Andrea Klusen in Berlin, who teaches for the Rolf Institute. Uh, she's teaching module one and two this year. There's Marisol Valente, who's a Brazilian rolfer, who's going to be teaching workshops in Munich this year. A lot of those workshops are to the rolfing community and biodynamic community. Uh, and then there's a retreat center in upstate New York, Sukuro. I can send you the information. We're going to be in residence there for two months, August and September. And we'll be, Don and I will both be there teaching module one and two with them, co-teaching with them. Uh, I'm also teaching a module one in Seattle in November. Uh, Ann Hoff is organizing that. Uh, and that workshop is specifically for structural integration practitioners. So we'll be looking at much more at the integration of the structural integration work with this energetic perspective. And then I'm teaching a module one in Toronto in April. So uh, there are a lot of class opportunities coming up and we'll have that schedule up on our website probably in a week. Uh, we'll post a, a link to that so people can have it. The good thing is it's going to take me a while to edit this all up, but I think there's still plenty of time that by the time I finish editing this, the classes will not have happened yet. So that'll be no, great. No, they will not. Yeah. yeah. Good. Good. I really want to thank you for making time. I'm, it's been a pleasure to to be in conversation with you and to get to know more about you and the work. I, I look forward to more conversations to come whether in person or via, via email because a lot of new curiosities have uh, have uh, been peaked yeah but I, yeah i just really do want to thank you as well as i now get to tick off one of the people on the list that i have so i had just <laughs> this this cue and it's like yes bob shry is now moving from the, the wanted to the in progress and eventually we'll move to completed so uh, that makes me feel great because i love lists <laughs> So uh, do you have uh, two more minutes? Yeah. 
Um, so I want to get back to Nikki's original question about painting. Yes. Because it, because it relates to this issue of presence. And uh, I'm just going to show you, I don't know if you can see. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's the painting, Nikki, only I'm doing small versions for people. Mm -hmm. This is life size. And that painting um, contains all the information of source point. It's such a teaser for the people who are listening because they don't get to see it, but they'll have yeah, to right. take a class and find out. <laughs> yeah. So what happened was uh, last year, a year ago during the pandemic, um, a rolfing colleague who studied source point was not, not working. And they called me up and they said, is there any chance you could do a smaller version of that painting for my office? And um, we looked at it and uh, takes me about 120 hours to do one of those small paintings. So that's three full weeks of work. And because of the pandemic, she didn't have the financial resources to um, pay much for the painting. So I said, why don't we put a notice up on the Facebook page, Sources Point Facebook page, and see if anybody else is interested. If there are enough people, I may be able to shorten the time it takes me uh, so that I can do these. And I ended up with 30 commissions. And uh, that last one was number 15 on Instagram. And uh, so I've completed 15 of those. And they're, they're a way, like that painting has presence to get back to that word. You know, and it carries the presence of, of the blueprint of health for the human being. And when Tom so Walker- That's probably why I've been thinking about it. Yeah. And uh, it's based on uh, Leonardo da Vinci's Vitruvian Man. And it was interesting. Tom Walker was here for a workshop a couple of years ago. And he said, you know, I really got interested because sometimes I see when I'm doing my work, I see that Vitruvian man, that image of the Vitruvian man just coming down into the person, you know, and that, that drawing of Leonardo da Vinci's Vitruvian man is, you know, a modern, semi-modern. It's not today, but it's a Western civilization representation of the blueprint. So this painting is a representation. It's a doorway to the blueprint is how I look at it. And so having that there right at the head of my table, uh, that's the third point. You know, that, that the presence of the presence is carried in that painting as far as I'm concerned, is working on the people on my table. So that's great. That's great. So it's also an inter for me, it's an integration of my artistic path, interest in the healing, interest in pattern, interest in sacred geometry, uh, all of these things put together. So. And we will let our in the show notes, let people know. Maybe you're going to get a following, a big following. <laughs> let them know where to uh, see these. 
because I know I see them because you post them ever so often. Yeah. But well, thank you so much for taking time with us. It has been such a pleasure to see you and to learn more about your work and how it, how it all came to be. Yeah. It's great to see you, Nikki. And it's nice to meet you, Andrew. And let's keep in touch. Yeah. I'd love that. And and please, please send Ray my best. Uh, Yeah, I will. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really great. I'm, I'm really grateful for uh, for him as a teacher and, and what he what doors he opened, aware or unawarely. So, yeah, I'm talking to him this weekend. So, pass it on. Great, Bob. Thank you for everything. Have a great day out there. Yeah, thank you. It's been great to talk to you both. Thank you. Thanks for listening to us at Touching Into Presence. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. You can find out more about Bob at SourcePointTherapy.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you would leave a positive review of the podcast and subscribe to it to the platform of your choice. When you do this, it really helps other people find us and we greatly appreciate your support. We look forward to hearing back from you and seeing you on our next conversation at Touching Into Presence. Bye for now.